podcast uses profanity and topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listen at your own risk. Welcome back to Helen Hills Podcast. I'm Bryce. I'm Amanda. And hello again. Welcome to episode 70. 70. 70. That's a good we're, number. Yeah, we're retired. Oh, for sure. Why we're still here, we don't know. We're supposed to be vacationing somewhere. Uh, I think it's Florida is the stereotype, right? Old people like Florida because it's not cold. Yeah. No, I think I mean, I feel like bingo follows the old people. I don't think people old people follow the bingo. Wait, hold on, that sounded really bad. <laughs> they just bring it with them. Yeah, they just bring their activities with them, you know? Yeah, bingo is in the caravan following the old people. Yeah, it's actually chasing them like a, like a stalker almost. <laughs> That's its own true crime case we're not covering today. <laughs> Maybe some other time, though. Yeah, not today, though. All right. Well, how are you? Well, my sleep schedule is trash. Um, cool. I don't know if you want to take a guess why. I get the feeling it's a really cute reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's her self-defense mechanism. Is that she's really cute? Yes. Makes you not want to hit them. Oh, that's why they have to grow out of it later on. I see. Yeah. When they're teenagers and they develop a smart out. It's smart elecky mouth. I try to say smart ass and smart elecky at the same time. Smart yeah. elecky. I don't know. But I don't know what's going on with her. Yesterday, I think she just felt bad. Like, she wasn't running a fever or anything. But she slept all day. And so she's today, like... she's just charged up. Well, it's because she slept all day. But that was and yesterday. I know, but she's also got, you've got to think, she was tired yesterday. Her sleep schedule's off, too. Yeah, but I'm worried about me right now. She quit being so selfish. I have to go to work tomorrow. Oh. She just goes to school where they dance and eat. And sleep, I'm sure. Yes, they do nap as well. I was going to say, I'm sure she gets nap time. I also have to bathe her tonight because she has peanut butter and jelly in her hair. Uh, so it's She's saving that. She is saving that for later. It's I got as much of it out as I could without the bath. Um, yeah. Well, it sounds like we've had um, rough, rough days. Uh, you already know about mine with my dog. Yes. How is Maisie? She's fine right now. So this morning, I don't even know how, like, I tried to explain it to you, and I don't know if it made sense. But this morning, she all of a sudden, like, we'd be sitting there, perfectly fine, very calm. And then she would just, like, jolt up and, like, take off to somewhere else, like, in the room or a different room. And she'd be, like, whining. Like, like oh. she was in pain. Yeah. I don't know what it was, but she's fine right now. We've been playing fetch, so. Maybe she just had a bad morning. Yeah, it was, um, it was something else. So there's that. But well, I'm glad she's feeling better. Oh, yeah, she's feeling better. I know part of it is that she's dramatic, but it's like I can't tell what part of her is being dramatic and what part is like actually hurting. So both. Both are hurting. She's in pain and she's also in pain because the, the dramatics are gone. So she's got to find something else now. Oh, no, she was being pretty damn dramatic this morning. The whole need for her to run away and go to another room while yiping was pretty dramatic. <laughs> that is small potatoes, though. For well, she made sure I followed after her every time. 
for what I'm from what I've heard and uh, read up on the breed, that is like normal. Mama queens. Oh yeah, they're she's so dramatic with everything. But um, anything else? I don't. I don't think so. Um, do you, you want to shout out our listeners? Nebraska. Hey. Nebraska. I thought you were going to say no at first, and I was like, well. <laughs> No, I had to stop myself because I was going to, like, I felt the country coming out. So I had to. You were controlling. Okay. Yeah, I I was really trying to. Nebraska. Nebraska. I felt like a Nebraska coming out. And I was like, you stop it right now. (laughs) Uh, I just say Nebraska. So I don't have that issue. Well, we, we see you and we appreciate you. Yeah. Hey, what up? What up, Nebraska? Nebraskinians? I don't know. Nebraskinians. I like skinnians better. Oh, okay. Nebraskinians. Okay. That Happy to have you. So uncomfortable how you said it. Skinnians? Yeah. Yeah, that's why I like it. It's, I'm so uncomfortable right now. Okay, well, moving right on along, um, we do post all of our pictures from our episodes on Twitter, Helen Hills Pod. Instagram and Facebook, both Helen Hills podcast. You can find all of the links to the things on Linktree. If you have any ideas, suggestions, just anything you want to throw at us, um, you can email us at helenhillspodcast at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon where our patrons will get early access to our episodes as well as special episodes such as the Goose Game or a new episode that we are working on creating and getting sent out uh, or updated. And then I think that's everything. Are you ready for a story? I'm so ready. I'm excited. Do you know what it is by looking at the pictures? You don't. Oh, have to I look. haven't even brought them back up okay. yet. Don't look at the pictures. You can look. I guess you might know by the pictures. Before we started recording, uh, James was fixing my camera, and somehow he moseyed on over to what? Moseyed on over to your true crime pictures, and I just oh, <gasps> you know by the pictures. Okay, hi. So- I'm so excited. I'm shutting up right now. Let's go. <laughs> okay. So Amanda knows what it is. The rest of you are just going to have to wait until I say what it is. Did she just break your glasses? Oh, no. They were already broken. That's why I gave them to her. Oh, okay. Anyways, are you ready? Yes. I, I'm so I feel ready. Like, I feel like I've been teasing this uh, story for you for like a while. Yeah. Yeah, you really have. Because I didn't want to do it. I've been avoiding it. Been hamming it up. This story is suspected to be one of Canada's most prolific serial killers. In British Columbia, Canada, the vast amount of disappearances among women was so significant that officials had no choice but to form the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry. Uh, This commission was ordered by Lieutenant Governor in Council. Uh, It was formed in September... Nope. It was formed September 27th, 2010, and was meant to evaluate the response of law enforcement to reports of missing and murdered women. They conduct- conducted this inquiry in December 2012. Uh, whoops, I'm sorry. I can't even read my own notes. They concluded their inquiry in December 2012, and this outlined 63 recommendations to the provincial government and law enforcement. In this report, it noted that Indigenous women experience a heightened vulnerability to violence. The inquiry found that during the time that women were missing, approximately 33% of the cases were that of Indigenous women. The events I'm about to talk about happened well before this commission is created. 
In fact, the events are part of what triggered the commission to be created at all. From the years of 1971 to 2001, Canada had significant reports of women going missing, most of them disappearing from the downtown, downtown east side in Vancouver, British Columbia. The downtown east side in Vancouver was a notorious neighborhood. The community faced high levels of drug use, homelessness, poverty, crime, and a lot of sex workers. You might often hear this area being compare, compared to Skid Row in California. At least 65 women had disappeared from this area. While the area these women disappeared from is stricken with its own challenges, it's also described as a village. So just to give you an idea of where they are, there's a community of all these people. They care for one another. They know each other, their friends, their family. The women that did go missing, the friends and family of these women, they were reporting these women missing. But unfortunately, police response is not what they would have hoped for. Often police would tell family and friends that women would show up in a day or two, assuming they were off getting their next fix somewhere. Or police would often suggest that maybe the women have cleaned up their life and moved on to better things, which of course is the hope for all of these families. But is the hope, but also why would they just cut their family off completely? That one doesn't make much sense to me. Yeah, well, that's that's really the reality of what people were living in. The people mm -hmm. in this area, and a lot of the reading that I did said that this was actually kind of an area whether intentionally or unintentionally created by authorities in the area. They were in like the West side, they were breaking down or cracking down on strip clubs and sex workers on that area. And that kind of pushed everyone to this, this downtown East side anyways. Um, okay. And then you start seeing all these women going missing. Now, all of these women, not all of their cases are solved, but we're going to talk about some of them whose cases are solved or assumed solved. Wendy Lynn Eistetter, she is 30 years old. She's the mother of two children who she, she loved both of them, but they lived with their father. Wendy, unfortunately, had a severe drug addiction to cocaine and heroin. So she was unable to care for her children properly. And so the best decision was to have them with their father. On March 22nd, 1997, Wendy is working as a sex worker in Vancouver's downtown east side. Very late that night, a man would offer her $100 for her services. And at this time, that's a lot of money for Wendy. She would be able to get her next fix. She'd be set up. Like, that's a lot of money for her. And it's getting her her next fix. Uh, they go back and forth. And ultimately, Wendy's like, all right, this is a lot of money. I will go back to this guy's place with him. He does. He says he doesn't live too far. But I'll, I'll go and we'll do this. I'll get my hundred bucks out of this. Do you know if that was normal to go back to, like, their place? I know a lot of times, you know, people go to hotels or... You know, something like that. Um, the way I read it, it didn't really specify, but it, it sounded like she was like, I'll go back to his place because this $100 is much higher than I would typically get. Just being like on the street or in a hotel or something. Like It was just a really high rate and she was like, it's worth it. So he knew he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Wendy would get into his red truck and they would head to this man's home. They get there and Wendy is less than impressed with his place. It was a little trailer. She noted that the place was a pigsty. And this was not from the pigs that lived on the property as he had taken her to his home, which was on a pig farm in Port Coquitlam. Amanda already knows the story. Some of my our listeners might now know like the story where we're going, mm -hmm. but if you know, you me. know. Yeah, if you know, you know. Wendy and this man, they would do the deed. And Wendy's like, all right, cool. I'm going to get ready to go. You can take me back to the city. Give me my money. Peace out. 
She held up her end of the bargain. And while she's getting ready, this man is able to get a set of handcuffs onto one of her wrists. Now, I do want to mention that Wendy is a pretty small set lady. She's very petite. She's not like, she's not really going to be able to fight off a full grown man um, easily, right? Now, she also describes this maneuver that, and this is like the worst. I, ugh, okay. She describes what he did. Basically, she says that he was stroking or caressing her hand and then just kind of quickly slid the handcuffs on. So she wasn't expecting it. Gosh. That's, yes. Yeah. And, and that it feels like, especially, I, I just don't like him. Like, that feels worse to me. That he's sitting yeah. there, like, caressing your hand. Because, like, if anyone's ever had a job where you give money, you know, you give money back. Every now and then, I've had people, most of the time, older gentlemen of the creepy variety, that would, as you hand them their money, like, change or whatever, they would, like, just drag their fingers against the back of your hand. Oh, mm-mm. Yeah, no, I just, no. I just envision him, like, petting her hand and then all of a sudden handcuffs. Like, that's no. horrifying. I don't like that at all. Oh my God, this poor woman. It happened so fast. It really threw Wendy off. But she's, again, she's not impressed by this man, his pigsty. And she's just like, I am not staying here with this man. It's not happening. And she begins to fight back as this man proceeds to attack her. She would begin punching, hitting, and screaming, just trying to get away from this man. And I mean, he's, he's just attacking her. He knows what he's doing. And now Wendy's very observant. She remembered seeing a knife in the kitchen. And so she's like, I've got to get there. I've got to get something. So she begins trying to get to this knife. And keep in mind, she's doing this while this man is just attacking her, trying, you know, trying to get the other cuff on, trying to do God knows what, you know. Wendy is a badass. Yes. And to have that like mental, like I remember seeing a knife in the kitchen while all that's happening. Mm -hmm. Holy crap. Yeah. She is able to get to the knife. And in the process of her grabbing the knife, she actually slices her own palm. So she's injured herself there. I mean, there's blood on her now. It doesn't slow her down, though. I mean, she is just slashing away with the knife. She's swinging it around, protecting herself. She is causing injuries to this other man or to this man. And at this point, she's just like, what else is she supposed to do? She is somehow able to get out of the trailer. So she gets out of the trailer and she starts running. She's just, she bolts. But the man's not far behind her and he does catch up to her. He Uh does eventually overpower her and he would gain control of the knife. He would stab Wendy in the stomach and in the chest with the knife. Uh Wendy and this man, they're both injured. They're bloodied. I mean, they all have multiple wounds. And this man, she notices he's starting to struggle to stay conscious and he begins to kind of slump over. The man? And, yeah. She, huh. I mean, she was slashing away with the knife, you know? Yeah, okay. In a trailer, like in a small trailer. What are you going to, mm. you know? Okay. So she kind of notices he slumps over and she's like, now's my chance. She's, keep in mind, she's been stabbed twice at this point. She takes the knife and she runs again. She's just like, I've got to get out of here. And she is desperate for help. She goes across the street to this man's neighbor's homes. And she is pounding on doors, screaming for help, just trying to get anyone's attention. And unfortunately, two houses that were across the street from him, she didn't get a response. And she, what time was this? This is like really late at night. So okay. this is um, probably around like 
I don't know, midnight, 1 a.m. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. So she sees headlights coming up the road and she starts to panic. She's like, oh, my God, this man's coming back. He's going to kill me. Like, he's caught up to me. And she she kind of realizes pretty quickly that, oh, wait, just kidding. This isn't this red truck that I got in with with earlier. So it's not him. But she decides that she's got it. She's got to take advantage of this. And she rushes out to the car to get their attention. Now, keep in mind, she is bloodied. She's got multiple stab wounds. She's probably looking real, real crazy right now. But she desperately needs help. The elderly woman in the car sees this. And remember, this elderly woman sees a frenzied, bloodied, injured woman just running at her car. I'm not going to lie. I probably would not stop. I would call the police. But I would not stop. I, that's what I was thinking is at le- I probably wouldn't stop. At least not today. Like, I know this mm-hmm. was 19, what, 97? Yeah, that was, I feel like that was kind of a different, yeah. different time back then. I wouldn't stop now. No. But that's that's different. But they do stop. And they immediately take Wendy to the hospital. And they oh, make it to God. the ER at about 1.45 a.m. on March 23rd. So keep in mind, this started on March 22nd that night. And it's just now carried into the morning. Wendy's wounds were so extensive and life-threatening that the hospital would immediately take her back to the operating room. And they took her back with the handcuffs still attached to her wrist. Oh, God. That same morning, very early still, probably about 1.30, 1.45, somewhere around there, a man had also come to the hospital. He was bloodied and claimed that a hitchhiker he had so graciously stopped to help had attacked him. He told the hospital staff this crazy woman attacked him and he fought her off and he came straight to the hospital. Well, the hospital staff kind of is looking at him. They're looking at Wendy and they're like, hmm, interesting. And they know his story, but they don't really know much about Wendy's at this point. But they're coming in about the same time. They have similar injuries. Things aren't adding up for the hospital staff. Mm -hmm. And they, the hospital staff would find a key on this man. And they decide, let's test a theory. And I guess they were just going to attempt. They're like, well, let's just see if it works. But we're going to use this key to remove the handcuffs from Wendy's wrist. Let's see if it matches. Their theory was right. The key in the ma- on the man did unlock the handcuffs on Wendy. Can you imagine? Like, first of all, how? what are the odds that they end up at the same hospital? That's terrifying, for one. But thank God that it happened. But it, because it's probably the closest hospital, though. And if they're both yeah, pretty, because you said this was more, more of like a rural area. Port Coupe, right? right? I mean, there's farmland over there, or there was yeah. at the time. But thank God it did happen, and thank God he was stupid enough to still have the key on him. Right, idiot. Well, hospital staff contacts police at this point. They're like, mm, something's up, and police they take this man and Wendy's belongings as evidence to begin their investigation into this man. And this man's name is Robert Pickton. And boy, is he something. After the brutal attack on Wendy, police would charge him with attempted murder, assault with a weapon, and forcible confinement. Picton, however, is able to post the bail of $2,000. And about nine months later, the Crown would drop all charges against Picton. There was a lack of evidence. They didn't really consider Wendy a reliable witness. And this wasn't necessarily because she was a sex worker, but rather because of the drug use. So they did question her reliability there. But and uh, I'm going to wait because I know it's going to come out later. But that's that still frustrates me. 
Ultimately, the prosecutor would state that Wendy was not in a state to proceed with the charges when that time came. And Picton would spend no time in jail after his attack on Wendy. Do you want to make your comment now? I'm just, like, I'm frustrated because I hope I'm not ruining your story, but he did drugs at two, right? He didn't? Oh, okay. I might be remembering that wrong. At least I didn't have any reports that he was doing drugs. I thought he did too, but it might be. I don't know. You're probably thinking about, okay, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. The company he kept, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. we'll get there. Don't worry about it. But I still don't understand how they just let him go when this woman comes in in handcuffs, bloodied and beaten, and he comes in with the key to these hand. Like, what what evidence do you need? What more? They don't know who the aggressor was. That's another thing. They don't know whose story, because it's really at this point a he said, she said thing, right? Yeah. And she's viewed as lesser than sometimes, given her lifestyle mm -hmm. choices. Yes. Oh, my God. Which him. that actually comes into play for a lot of these missing women is they're just like, they're, they're not, they're so invisible to police and the public that it's just. Invisible it, is a better word. I like yeah. that. It's, I don't like using lesser than, but I like that. That's yeah. Well, I mean, there was even reports for the women. Um, their families were so upset because there was like a string of burglaries or something that had happened and police we're doing more for that than the missing women. Maybe like priority check a little bit, a smidge. Again, they already got their inquiry. They know what they have to fix, but. Well, hopefully they're fixing it. Let's talk about Robert Picton. Yeah. Okay. Robert William or Willie Picton was born on October 24th, 1949. He was born in Port. Port Co Coquitlam, which is in British Columbia, Canada. It's about 17-ish miles from, 17-ish uh, miles east of Vancouver. He was reportedly born with the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. And a lot of people believe that Picton had brain damage from this. I don't really believe that. I, I also read all the bullshit that he did. So it's like, eh, not yeah. buying it. I know, like, just, yeah, I don't feel yeah. bad for him. His father, Leonard Picton, was a butcher, and his mother, Louise Picton, ran the affairs of the family's pig farm. He had an older sister, Linda, and a younger brother, David. His sister, Linda, would be sent to live with family in Vancouver, since their parents just thought that a pig farm was not an ideal place to raise a lady. They're like, this, this isn't right for you, shoo-shoo. Which is just weird to me still, because her mom did it. Um, I can't remember... If, because I know this was a family pig farm, it was inherited from different people, but I don't know if it mm -hmm. was inherited from his mom's side or his dad's side. So I don't know if his mom married into it. Okay. So maybe she just wanted better for her daughter. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. But that left Dave and Robert home on the pig farm. And I mean, they did not have the greatest upbringing by any means. Their father was abusive towards them, causing Robert to have very little interactions with his father. And the boys would be forced to start working on the pig farm at young ages. Their mother also had some very high demands of the Picton brothers. They were forced to work long hours to raise the livestock. Louise would actually prioritize the pigs on the farm over the boys. So much so that the boys' personal hygiene was terrible, and she would send them to school in dirty clothes that they had previously worked in. Oh. They would go to 
school. They smelled like pigs and manure and sweat and grime and just not great. Uh, going to school like this also earned the boys the nickname of Stinky Piggy from their peers. Part of me feels bad for them as children. Yes, as children, I feel bad for them. Because that, that kind of feels like they were set up to fail. Yeah. It's like a rude, mean. Yeah. Now, even with his mother's really high demands of them and her borderline neglectful treatment, I would say neglectful, but that's my word. Um, but I agree. Yeah. Even with all of that, Robert Picton, he was still very attached to his mother. And, I mean, let's just talk about some of this mistreatment that he went through. Robert Picton had saved up enough money to get himself a calf at auction. Um, some sources said it was 35 Canadian dollars. And he was so proud. He was in his early teens at this point. He had saved the $35, whatever it may have been. And he bought this beloved pet calf. And he looked after it. He cared for it. One day he returned home from school and he's like, where the hell is my calf? And when he asked his mother or father about it, most sources said mother, some said father, just, I don't know. But when he asked his parents about it, they told him, go look out in the barn. And this is where Robert Picton would find that his calf had been slaughtered. Which is just, like, why? why? I don't, I mean, I don't like the guy, but nobody deserves that. Yeah, I just said, like, everything said, just, he just walked in and saw his, his calf hanging there. Because even, even if you're like, you know, like you need the money, you need the food, even if that's the case, I feel like there's a, can't you tell him it just ran away and then have steak for dinner? Like, can't, there's got to be a different way to go about that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know for sure. I, it's just one of those things that it's like, hmm. I feel bad for little Robert Picton. Yes. Uh, it, the feeling bad for him ends pretty quick, though. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And keep in mind, Amy, he is a child at this point, and he is just heartbroken. He is mm -hmm. so upset about his calf, and I couldn't even find the calf's name, which pissed me off because I wanted to call it by its name. And just so many different things. Yeah, this is, like, horrendous. I'm imagining that's horrendous for a kid to go to. And even if he's a teenager, like, those are yeah. your formidable years. Like, Well, he was still in school, so I know he was younger than 14 mm. years old. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. So, just another tale or rumor about his family. I couldn't find anywhere to, like, confirm this is true or not. I just saw this in a couple articles. So, from what I could tell, this is just, like, a rumor about the family. But this involved his brother hitting a 14-year-old boy, or a 14-year-old with their truck that his brother was driving. And the rumor is that in response, their mother just kind of rolled this 14-year-old who was still alive into a um, slough, which is basically like a swamp. And this 14-year-old would just drown because of the move out of my way, shoo-shoo. Okay, so she was... Um... She was a different type of mother. Yeah. <clears throat> and I and use that term loosely. Yeah. Um, and wow, sending her daughter away is probably the most motherly thing she ever did. Yeah, I was enough. glad she did that. Yeah, for real. Yeah. In 1963, at the age of 14, Robert would drop out of school completely. After this, he would become an apprentice to a butcher and would maintain this apprenticeship for about seven years until 1970. Now, I'm fairly certain it was not an apprentice to his father. 
and it was he was apprenticed under someone else. Okay, I only I say that because I couldn't find anything saying it was his father. And I feel like if it was, everything would have just mm-hmm. said father, right? I mean, I guess if him and his father didn't get along, the last thing you want to do was work directly under him and learn from mm-hmm. him. So, yeah. In 1970, Robert would leave this apprenticeship to go work full time on the family farm. So he was there for about seven years. Holy crap. Leonard Picton, his father, would pass away in 1978, and Louise Picton would pass a year later in 1979. Robert, Linda, and David had been left with the family's pig farm. Linda, she didn't want anything to do with it, so she's like, you guys live there, run and operate it, have fun, because she's a proper lady, right? (laughs) Yeah. Thank God. David didn't really want anything to do with the farm itself, but he would take up residence in the family's home. Robert would take on the full responsibility of the farm and he would live on a remote part of the property in a trailer. Robert was described by a former employee of the farm as a pretty quiet guy with bizarre behaviors. And this this person also expressed that it was not caused by drug abuse. And he would describe the farm as just a creepy looking place. In 1994 and 1995, the Pictons would sell part of their land, earning them about million Canadian dollars. Okay. And what year? Uh, 94 and 95. Holy crap. Okay. And that's just a part. Mm -hmm. Okay. In 1996, Robert and David would register a nonprofit charity they called the Piggy Palace Good Time Society. Which still, like, that's, this can't, like, how do you not look at that and be like, this can't be real? Well, listen, hear me out. People did look at this and go, this can't be real. Okay. Okay. They claimed to, quote, organize, coordinate, manage, and operate special events, functions, dances, shows, and uh, exhibits. Exhibitions. That's exhibitions. Fine. Um, Shows and exhibitions on behalf of service organizations, sports organizations, and other worthy groups. Say Say the name one more time, Piggy. The Piggy Palace Good Time Society. I can guarantee you, if someone was like, hey, there is this badass party going down at the Piggy Palace Good Time Society. At the Piggy Palace Good Time Society, I would be like, I will firm pass on that. If you want to shorten it, it's just PPGTS. PPGTS. (laughs) I'm not going anywhere that starts with PP. You could call me infantile, but uh, <laughs> look, if y'all look at the pictures of this farm, this is what nightmares are made of. It's, it is horrifying. It is less than pleasant. I'm pretty sure I've seen this in multiple scary movies. Yeah, it's less than pleasant. Babe, I guarantee you, you do not want to go to the Piggy Paggis. Piggy Paggis. <laughs> what? Piggy Palace Good Time Society. Society. Really, they just would throw parties under the pretense of it being for charitable causes. They held these parties in a slaughterhouse on the farm that they had actually converted into this uh, party space. And that'll, we'll talk about that converted space for a brief second a little later on. And these parties could attract as many as 2,000 guests. Why are y'all going to party in a slaughterhouse? Many of the attendees were reportedly members of biker gangs and sex workers. 
A lot of people say that the sex workers were brought there for the biker gangs. I didn't see any of that. Those were typically podcasts that I listened to that would say that, but I didn't find any sources that actually affirmed that. And it's likely that the biker gangs were the crowd that would come because it's rumored that David Picton was part of a biker gang known as Hell's Angels. So he's just got his buddies and their buddies and all the bikers alliances and whatever coming over and partying. By the time they had formed the Piggy Palace Good Time Society, the farm had already begun being neglected. Like the livestock were being neglected, the farm itself, the agriculture, all of that neglected. In 1997, different legal issues against the pig farm arose due to the poor conditions of the farm. The brothers didn't really seem too worried about the legal issues because they continued to run PPGTS. And they kept throwing these extravagant parties. They had no cares in the world. And not long after, people would begin to notice that a lot of women who attended these soirees would go missing. And people would report this to police, but due to these women being sex workers, it was really just a low priority for the police at the time. Now, we know that in 1997, Robert was charged with the attempted murder of Wendy, even though the charges would be dropped. In 1998, a former employee of the farm would call police to tell police that Picton might be a person of interest regarding the missing women. In that same year, some family of the missing women would start to kind of be led to Pictons and because they, at this point, the family of a lot of the missing women were taking matters into their own hands. They were looking for their loved ones. It didn't sound like they had another choice. Yeah. And a lot of them are led to Pictons and that's kind of, they're suspicious and they're not really sure. And after finally connecting the missing women, maybe connected to one person, uh, basically after they've the police have like, all right, this might be the work of a serial killer. In 1998, Detective Dave Dixon officially starts an investigation. Like he's finally like, yeah, this might be a serial killer given the clearance has a little bit more support than what they were getting previously. Can you imagine looking for your family member and someone's like, oh, go to the piggy palace, try that. And you roll up to this freaking farm straight out of hell's handbook. Oh my God. It would be so awful. Can you I guarantee imagine? you, everybody that come to this farm looking for their family member know, knew exactly what happened to them when they saw this. And oh, that, I'm sure. That kills me. Because mm-hmm. Especially since you said they, they weren't even taking care of their animals. Yeah. So a lot of it is they, they didn't have a lot of animals anymore. They, I mean, they didn't really... There was one article that talked about how uh, the roof of one of the barns or stables or whatever you want to call it had collapsed. And so when they did have livestock, Robert Picton would just shove all these pigs in a, like a horse trailer until he was ready to slaughter them. Okay. Yeah, that seems, I'm sure PETA loved him. I think that's an American I'm sure thing. They're I don't know if it's bestie. worldwide. I think it's worldwide. I feel like everyone knows PETA. Yeah, I, I think they know PETA. I, I guarantee you he knew PETA. Personally. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> In 1998, the Pictons would be sued by Port Coquitlam officials for zoning ordinances. They had severely neglected the agriculture of what the farm was zoned for. Also in the lawsuit was for having, quote, altered a large farm building on the land for the purpose of holding dance, concerts, and other recreations. Okay, if that wasn't allowed, how the hell did they even get this thing registered? Well, they didn't do any... They registered a nonprofit. They didn't necessarily say... 
like with the nonprofit, it didn't come with the building. Those are. But I would. I mean, I would assume you have to tell them some kind of information, like, "Oh, this is our home base," and I guess nobody. But they could have just been using their residence address, because the barn was used for the parties mm-hmm. and the events, and for other Maybe. nonprofits, events might not be held at the same place. They don't need to know what event center you're doing things at. Maybe the house didn't look as bad as the rest of the place. Well, I don't necessarily know that the house was vetted. I think it's pretty apparent. I don't think any of this was vetted that okay. well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I don't think the nonprofit went to the house and went, yeah, it looks like you got a fine organization. I think they submit the paperwork and I don't said think, this is what we're doing. I don't think anything was vetted on this farm, including the pigs. I think the only thing vetted on this farm were the pigs. <laughs> God. But. Now I'm sorry, I'm trying to make yeah. light of it because this is no, just, you're, it's oh such an uncomfortable. Oh, it gets so much worse. Oh no, we're uh, not even to the bad part. I know. Now, <sighs> at this point, they have a serious legal action against them. What do you think these ding dongs do? I think they continue to bring the Hells Angels to party party. They ignore it and instead okay. they hold a 1998 New Year's Eve party. So this is 1998 <sighs> going into 99. Of course, the millennials right around the corner. What else are you? Y2K, remember? Yeah, like we've got one more year before Y2K, duh. Yeah, we got to do this now before the computers destroy the planet. Yeah. Well, after that party, the Pictons, the Pictons, after that party, the Pictons would have an injunction banning future parties. And did that work? Well, yeah, because now police were authorized to arrest and or remove any attendees for future parties. Oh, okay. So, bye. The Piggy Palace Good Time Society would officially lose its nonprofit status in 1999. And this was largely because they were unable to produce the necessary financial statements. And subsequently, after they lost the nonprofit status, the Piggy Palace Good Time Society would just kind of disband. Shocking. Yeah. In 1999, police investigating the missing women believed that Picton should probably be under surveillance. They kind of had a couple tips already about him. Families were already pushing in his direction. And they're like, well, we know about Wendy. Like, there's a lot of things that might point to him. But from what I can find, they did not put him under surveillance at this time. And it's possible that this surveillance came after receiving a tip that Picton kept human flesh in freezers on the property. That'll do it. That would do it. There was never a search warrant executed for this, but they did get that tip and they were like, maybe we should watch him. And then they didn't watch it. You said, and then they didn't. They did not. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So cool, cool, cool. Great. Wonderful. That they thought about it. Yeah. In 1999, investigators from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police would visit Picton's home. He wasn't there, but he would call later and he's like, yeah, let's go ahead and talk. Let's clear the air. And in 2000, he would be later interviewed by them. Now, it was like end of 99, beginning of 2000, right there, where this all happened. And then life continues. And between 2000 and 2002, there's not a lot. So not a lot is known that I could find in 2001. But on February 6, 2002, police would execute a search warrant for illegal firearms at the farm. Both brothers are arrested at this time. And again, by this time, investigators, they're already working on the missing women's case. They were already somewhat suspicious of Picton. 
they just at that point they were like we don't have enough to execute a search warrant we can't get a search warrant for picked in for the missing women they needed something concrete because otherwise mm-hmm. you risk losing that well i don't i don't know about canada but i know in the u.s if you don't have a concrete reason and you find all this other info you can't use it yeah well they got their concrete info of the illegal firearms at the farm mm-hmm. and they're like Let, let's take it and let's run with it and they they do it and during the initial search police would find some things that were off it was enough for them to obtain a second search warrant of the farm as part of the bc british columbia missing women's investigation police would find personal items belonging to missing women on the property the farm would be sealed off at this time they would bring in a forensic anthropologist and they would join that investigation team And they would start bringing in some heavy equipment to help find traces of human remains. And this included two 50-foot flat conveyor belts and solid sifters. They're excavating this farm. They are digging everything up. On February 7th, 2002, Picton is charged with a weapons offense. So this is the same day, or the day after, I'm sorry. This is the day after the search warrant for the illegal firearms. He is charged with the weapons offenses. Both Pictons would be released, but police would keep an eye on Robert and put him under surveillance at this time. On February 22nd, 2002, Robert Picton is arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Serena Abbotsway, who went missing in 2001, and Mona Wilson, who also went missing in 2001. On April 2nd, 2002, three more charges are added for first-degree murder for the murders of Jacqueline McDonnell, who went missing in 1999, Diane Rock, who went missing in 2001, and Heather Bottomley, who went missing in 2001. Jesus. On April 9th, 2002, police add an additional charge for the murder of Andrea Josbury, who went missing in 2001. And then they added, soon after they added that charge for Andrea, they added another charge for Brenda Wolf, who went missing in 1999. On September 20th, 2002, four more charges are added for the uh, murder of Georgina Pappin, who went missing in 1999, Patricia Johnson, who went missing in 2001, Helen Hallmark, who went missing in 1997, and Jennifer Firminger, who went missing in 1999. On October 3rd, 2002, another four charges are added. And this is for Heather Chinrock, who went missing in 2001, Tanya Holick, who went missing in 1996, Sherry Irving, who went missing in 1997, Inga Hall, who went missing in 1998. At this point, you're probably asking, how many is that? The total by October of 2002 is 15 charges of first-degree murder. In how many days? Uh, This started in February. Holy crap. And by October. And that's just the ones that they identified, right? And knew for sure. That list is not complete. Oh, okay. Oh my gosh. And police do they continue their excavations of the farm through no- November of 2003. So this started in 2002, beginning of 2002, went to almost the end of 2003. I knew this story. I didn't realize how like how recent 2003, that's that's, that's recent. Pretty recent, yeah. Yeah. Compared to like some of these other stories that we do, I didn't realize it was that recent. Mm-hmm. And that's even more terrifying. Yeah. The investigation against Robert Picton was the largest investigation of any serial killer in Canadian history. 
And from what I can find, it's still the largest. I haven't found anything to say that they've had a larger investigation. By the end of 2003, the cost for the investigation is estimated to be 70 or nearly 70 million Canadian dollars. Oh, huge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In 2003, a preliminary inquiry would be held. And in this hearing, they had a publication ban and that ban was lifted in 2010. So that's how we have a lot of these details now. Um, however, with that publication ban, there are also a lot of lost details. So you'll see a lot of things where it's, well, because of the publication ban, we don't know the full reasoning, but this is what we do know. Okay. During the inquiry, it is brought up that Picton was charged with the attempted murder of Wendy Eistetter in 1997. Wendy would even testify at this inquiry. And she included in her testimony was the fact that hospital staff had found the key to unlock her handcuffs on Picton. Hello. Hello. And also, I just wanted to say, like, she's even more of a badass because not only did she fight him off, escape, survive, she went back and had to look at him and testify yeah. against him. Yeah, I mean, I just, she's, she's going for it. Yeah. It was also disco- discovered during this inquiry that in 1998, Vancouver police had received a call stating that Picton should be investigated in the case of the missing women. Detective Constable Lormer Shinners, uh, wrote a book in 2015 about the case and they were they basically said in this book they were unable to get police resources and attention on the case until 2002 so he's like yeah we had these tips in 98 but we couldn't get the backing we couldn't get the resources we couldn't get what we needed we didn't like our hands were pretty tied which is really sad i wonder if that has something to do with because hell's angels that was i say was it is uh but you know, back in its day, that was a huge, huge gang. And I know they're still around today. I wonder if maybe they had people on their side. I know we see that a lot. I don't think it was the case here. I think it was that the women were really invisible to police. Like, oh, they're out getting their next fix. Or, oh, they're they're off living a better life. Or they're, they just, they don't really... They, they kind of seem to think that because of these women's posi- positions and statuses, they're like, there's, they're not worth looking for. It's kind so, of how everything I found. They're, so they're, they're thinking that it's a quote unquote waste of resources. Kind of like it, nothing ever said that outright, but that's, that's the general feeling I got from it. It also okay. came out that in 1999 police received another tip that Picton had a freezer filled with the human fre- flesh on his farm. Right. So now we're at this preliminary inquiry. I've already told you about that. Mm-hmm. But now, like, they're like, also, we told you that he he had a freezer filled with human flesh. Police are like, yeah, we did interview him and picked and denied any involvement with the missing women. And police had gotten consent from Picton for them to search the, the property. They just didn't conduct the search in 1999. Oh, well, that's that's nice of you. because. I mean, to be fair, they interviewed him and he said he didn't do it. He didn't so, do it. Obviously, he's perfectly just, just, just he's, okay. Yeah. On March <sighs> 10th, 2004, government officials would also reveal that Robert Picton potentially ground up human flesh and mixed it with the pork that he sold to the public. This is the part. This is the part. This is the part. This is, oh God, just do it. Health authorities would also issue warnings soon after. That's all I've got there. This is just terrifying because yeah. 
I think I either read or heard or whatever somewhere that he like a the product that come from his farm went pretty uh, pretty far and wide across Canada. So it's very possible well, that a lot of people ate meat from this mm-hmm. farm. That's part of the reason that health authorities did issue a warning because they're like, oh shit, you know, like they they didn't really have much of a choice; they had to. And um, if you can't tell, I'm doing a timeline here. Like I'm just going based off of a timeline. On May 26, 2005, 12 more charges would be added. Kara Ellis, 1997. Well, Kara Ellis, she went missing in 1997. Andrea Borhaven went missing in 1997. Deborah Lynn Jones went missing in 2000. Marnie Frey went missing in 1997. Tiffany Drew, 2000. Carrie Kolsky, 1997. Sarah DeVries, 1998. Cynthia Felix went missing in 1997. Angela Jardine. Uh, went missing in 1998. Wendy Crawford, 1999. Diane Melnick went missing in 1995. And the final charge was for a Jane Doe. Okay. So how, what do, what are we at total here? 27. Okay. Um, holy shit. So remember how when Picton initially went to the hospital after his attack on Wendy Eistetter, police take, took his belongings as part of evidence? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They still had that. And they did something with it, surely. The the clothes and the boots that Picton had been wearing, they were still in evidence. And so they would be tested in 2004, and test results showed DNA from Kara Ellis and Andrea Borhaven were on his boots. So not even even the woman there that night. Uh, there might have been. I don't know, but I think they're focused on the first-degree murder charges at this point. So, did they just take this stuff and never do anything with it? Did they just take it and shove it in a locker or something? Or I don't know. I have oh. no clue. Uh, okay. At least they kept it, I guess. Yeah. So, we're, I mean, we're now up to 27 charges total. The forensic analysis proved to be pretty difficult for police. A lot of the bodies had just been left to decompose or been eaten by insects or worse by the pigs on the farm okay yeah so they really they struggled to get all of the forensics and everything together like they had skeletal remains they had a lot of stuff but they were piecing everything together trial would begin on january 30th 2006 and picton would plead not guilty to the 27 counts of first degree murder really okay that's what you're going to go with. He has spent a lot of time pointing his finger and saying there's so much more. Like, you guys didn't get the full story. But he's not provided said full story. So, he keeps, uh, like, uh. he's he's got this, it wasn't me, it was someone else mentality going on. Did you say uh, where their belongings were found? Was it found in, in his trailer? trailer? Or on the property. Most of them were in his trailer. But it wasn't his. Somebody else put those there. Planted. Duh. Yeah, obviously. Okay. Obviously. Get your shit together. Well, my bad. There's a phase. So he pleads not guilty to all 27 counts. And there's a phase of trial known as Vor Dyer. Um, basically, it's in the US, it's the phase that, from what I could find, it's the phase that of the jury selection. Like we're selecting our jury. Okay. If this includes a different process for Canada, it seems it does because. They also spent a year trying to figure out what evidence would be admitted before the jury. 
Oh, a year or almost a year. It took most of the year to determine that. Sorry. I was going to ask if they got speedy trials there. I guess not. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I don't care in his case. You have to think about like, even in the U.S., a speedy trial, like that can take years still to do. Yeah. Speedy trials, like three years here. Yeah. They take about almost a year, most of the year to kind of figure out this process. On March 27th, 2006, so not not a year yet, but one of the counts at this point of the first degree murder is rejected by Justice James Williams. He says he he basically says we're not charging him for this this one count because there is not enough evidence. So he basically says you guys might want to, but we're going to drop the count down to 26 counts of first degree murder instead of the 27th. I mean, I hate it for that woman, but... I believe it was the Jane Doe. Ugh. Okay, that really sucks. Because, like, we don't even know who she is, and now she doesn't even get justice. Well, you're... Anyways. Okay. On August 9th, Justice Williams would also sever the charges. So what that basically means is he's splitting them into groups. So he split them into two groups. One group with six counts of first-degree murder and a second group of 20 counts of first-degree murder. And so trial then could proceed on the first six counts. So it's not dismissing the other 20 right now. He's saying those we can try those later, but I want to focus on these six or I want to split it so that we're... Whatever his reasoning is, he's he's splitting it. So he's it's still the same trial. We're just taking it in stages? Or nope. are these going so to trial? Would be separate trials. Got you. Okay, I'm with you. Yep. And again, due to the publication ban on this case, it's not 100% clear why it was decided to sever the charges. However, the judge did explain that trying all 26 charges at once would put an unreasonable burden on the jury as the trial could last up to two years. It also would have increased the chance for a mistrial, trying to prove on all 26 charges that he was indefinitely guilty of first-degree murder. And Judge Williams also added that the six counts that he chose um, had materially different evidence from the other 20. So what that means, I didn't get a lot of clarity. Again, that publication ban, kind of some of that information either has never been released or has been lost. It does sound like he's not being unfair about it, though. And I don't say this as a person that's like, go rot in jail, I hope you die type thing to Picton. But it does sound like I didn't he's even being reasonable. Yeah, he's doing his job. Like he's right. Keeping those people on a jury for two years, that's holy crap. Yeah. Holy crap. Okay. Fair, yeah. fair point, Mr. Judge Man. Mm-hmm. Trial for the first six would really officially begin on January 22nd, 2007. So now we have the jury, they're here. Trial is actually beginning. Like I know we said it already started, but it's really starting. And this is the trial for the murders of Marnie Frey, Serena Abbotsway, Georgina Pappen, Andrea Josbury, Brenda Wolf, and Mona Wilson. This was the first six, he this said? This is the first six, yes. Okay. And the media ban, like I said, it's still there, but there are some details that have been allowed to be shared with the public at this time of what was found during the investigation. So it's not, it's not completely lifted, but I mean, the public is starting to learn about what's happening. During the first day, 
The Crown stated that Picton had confessed to 49 murders to an undercover agent posing as his cellmate. They reported that Picton told this officer that they wanted that Picton wanted to kill another woman to make it an even 50 before taking a break and then continuing his murder spree later on. Not even stopping, just going Not on vacation. Taking a break. Oh my God. He also stated that he was caught because he was sloppy. There is a whole ass video of this. Do you want to see it? Yes, I do. Because, okay. son, you've been sloppy your whole ass life, piggy. What do they call him? Piggy boy? Stinky piggy. Stinky piggy. Yeah. How? So how do you feel about that whole thing? For one, I could have gone without seeing it in skivvies. <laughs> oh, sorry. I should have warned you. Yeah. I would have appreciated sorry. a warning. So I, if y'all go watch that. Uh, yeah. He, he gets down from his underwear and then with some pale, skinny little thighs. Some chicken legs. But so he, <laughs> I I knew about this and I forgot about it. He sent some of the people to a rendering plant. Mm -hmm. That's fucking terrifying. Yep. So he did send some of them, according to his own omission, to a rendering plant. That's terrifying because like a rendering plant, it renders down uh, what animal byproducts into all sorts of things. Not just like pet food or uh, other uh, livestock food, but like freaking makeup, the soap, perfume, uh, mm -hmm. uh, lubricants, I think cooking oil, even like this is holy sh this what the f okay. Yeah. okay, okay. So I will try my hardest to remember to post the link for this video on instagram twitter all the things but i don't make promises because i probably um i probably will forget let's be honest but i will try if someone wants to call me out if i forget let me know um but <clears throat> are you actually ready to hear the horrifying things that they found on the farm it's a tough list to get through okay it's not wanna... long but i'm gonna i'm gonna just jump in you want to rapid fire Countless bloodstains, clothing belonging to the missing women, IDs belonging to the missing women, skulls cut in half with hands and feet stuffed in them, reportedly ground human meat, skeletal remains. Some of this was found uh, freezers out in the open, free range. Um, one victim was stuffed in a garbage bag. Her bloody clothes had been found in Picton's trailer. Part of another victim's jawbone and teeth were found beside Picton's slaughterhouse. Um, 80 unidentified DNA profiles, about half male, half female. These are items found specifically inside of Picton's trailer. A 22 caliber revolver attached to a dildo. Forgot about that. With one round fired. Ah! Ah! Both Picton's and the victim's DNA were found on this. I did not get clarity on which victim. I also didn't feel like I needed clarity. Like, that was enough. Boxes of 357 Magnum handgun ammunition, night vision goggles, two pairs of fur handcuffs, a syringe with three millimeters of blue liquid inside. I never got clarity on what the blue liquid was. Um, I have my speculations of what they are. And Spanish fly aphrodisiac. That's a uh, that's a that's a drug. That's um, um that's a hell of a drug. From what I hear, not, I don't know personally. I mean, I, it was never clarified if he did it or gave it to other people. I don't know. Okay. Was that the end? 
No. Ah! Oh, that's, sorry, that's the end of the evidence list okay. that I could find. Sorry. For him to say he got sloppy, I already said, like, he's disgusting. Like, he... he. Hey, listen, I was ta- I called my dad today, and I was telling him a little bit, and I said, this man, when you look at him, he is not a man I would ever approach. He looks like he was born and raised in, like, the kitchen of a KFC. He does not look like Colonel Sanders. No, but he looks like he has rolled in grease every day of his life. He, he's, he looks like what he is. He looks, yeah. And we're so, not talking like a pig farmer. We're talking like a, a sad killer. excuse for a human being. That too. Um, the jury would also be presented this evidence and they were presented with some different videotapes. Let's just address this first videotape they're addressed uh, or they're shown. It is a recording of Picton. And in this recording that was played again for the jury, Picton claimed to have attached the dildo as a makeshift silencer. Cool. Wait, Picton- oh. <laughs> where? Wait, okay. Where did this video come from? Why I think is there- it was like testimony that they previously recorded. Again, I didn't get clarity. I just know it was a video that was played. This is a long time coming, too. Uh, Okay. It also could have been during, like, interrogations, interviews, things like that. Like, after they found it. If that was his excuse, or if that... Please let it be an excuse. No, I don't know what to wish. Well, I I mean, that is his excuse. But that's not the reality of it. Yeah, that's what I don't like about this. So you were hoping that his excuse was like actually the real deal and it's not. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. I wish you wouldn't have told me that part. Sorry. Picton's friend Scott Chubb was also taped stating that Picton had told him a good way to kill female heroin addicts was to simply inject them with windshield washer fluid. Which I assume that's what they found in that syringe with the blue blue. liquid. But I couldn't find what it was and it pissed me off. For days, I couldn't. I still couldn't find it. I was so pissed. My first thought was it was uh, uh, he meant yeah, antifreeze. He mentioned it in the the video, so I was like, oh, it must have been with that bit. That was why windshield wiper fluid. Because people are freaking insane. Oh. Anyways, moving on from that, um, one of his associates, Andrew Bellwood, would also be taped stating that Picton mentioned killing sex workers by handcuffing and strangling them then bleeding and gutting them before feeding them to the pigs. Andrew Bellwood reportedly did take this information to police in the 90s. We know what happened there. Wow. The jury was also presented with photographic evidence of a garbage can in Picton Slaughterhouse where Mona Wilson's remains were found. Like in the garbage can. Okay. One woman, Lynn Ellingson... Which normally, a lot of times, like, if I felt like this was true, I probably wouldn't include her name. But I feel like I don't like her as much as I don't like Picton. But, okay, that's not true. I don't like her. But this woman, Lynn Ellingson, claimed to have seen Picton skinning another woman hanging from a meat hook. She claimed to be so scared, too scared to go to police because Picton threatened her, said she'd be next, blah, blah, blah. However, she goes on to admit having blackmailed him with this information on more than one occasion. So she's not that scared of it. You bitch. She's not that you, scared of it. You dirty. Okay. And no, now you uh, see why I'm like, I I don't like her. Because she, yeah. she was not scared of him if she was blackmailing him like that. Absolutely not. Maybe, so. maybe once. If she's like, you know, he's threatening you and you're like, well, I know this or whatever. But 
even that doesn't make sense to me. But to keep doing it, no, you were a shitbag through and through. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, I don't. Yeah, she did testify against Picton during the trial. Again, she she knew. She yeah. To further complicate things, in October of 2007, one juror was accused of already having made up her mind that Picton was innocent. So someone is like, no, she's already she already has decided Picton's innocent. The juror is questioned by Judge Williams, and Judge Williams stated, quote, It's reported to me you said from what you have seen you were certain Mr. Picton was innocent. There was no way he could have done this, that the court system had arrested the wrong guy. Now, this juror denies the accusations completely. They're like, uh, no. And they are allowed to remain on the jury because there was no evidence to prove she had made the statement. So, I mean, they're having to go through this process and vetting the juror again and making sure. But they move on. They're like, all right, I can't prove this, but I got my eye on you. Yeah. Okay. And then they move on. Jury gets to deliberations. But Justice William Williams has to sus- suspend jury deliberations on December 6, 2007. And this was after he discovered an error in his charge to the jury. Basically, the jury had written him a question requesting clarification of one of his charges, and he had to go and clarify it. So he had to go, like, clarify. He basically gave them, like, not a very clear answer or an indirect answer, and he had to go back and clarify there. So, I mean, another delay. On December 9th, 2007, though, the jury would return their verdict. And you're going to die. They found Picton not guilty on six counts of first-degree murder. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. What? He was found not guilty on six counts of first-degree murder, but he was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. I still ask you how. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about what some people believe a little bit about why that is during one of the appeal processes. Oh, God. Okay. So... He is, he's found guilty of second-degree murder. Now, in Canada at the time, I don't know if it's changed, I didn't do any research, but a second-degree degree murder conviction included a life sentence with no possibility of parole for a period between 10 to 25 years. And that 10 to 25 years is to be set by the trial judge. On December 11, 2007, after reading 18 separate victim impact statements, Justice Williams sentenced Sentences picked into life with no possibility of parole for 25 years. And the way all of the articles said this was actually, the, first of all, this is the maximum sentence for second degree murder charge. But it is also equal to the sentence which would have been imposed for a first degree murder conviction. So, and I actually asked my dad about that and he said, yeah, that makes no sense to me. <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't understand any of this. At least he got sentenced the max i guess i'll get him that but i'm still hung up on the second degree murder oh yeah um so he's he's sentenced to second degree murder or uh convicted of second degree murder justice williams made the statement during sentencing quote mr pickton's conduct was murderous and repeatedly so i cannot know the details but i know this what happened to the victims was senseless and despicable valid sir yeah I agree. I concur. On January 7th, 2008, the attorney general would file an appeal against Picton's acquittals on the first degree murder charges. So basically they're like, no, no, no. Um, They're basically saying like it shouldn't have been second degree. It should be first degree. 
And basically the prosecution, which I mean, for the U.S., this is the prosecution, their appeal states that the judge gave the jury instructions, whether they were incorrect or misleading, those instructions are what lowered the sentence to a second degree murder. So they're basically saying that the judge's charge on this is what caused the second degree murder. Like we have the evidence to prove it's first degree. And also the ruling to sever the counts into two groups also affected the jury's ruling. So they're basically like, no, he should have been charged with all 26 counts at once. But us having to split it has now affected the jury's ruling. So that's what the prosecution is doing, right? Uh, the prosecution previously had told families, oh, we probably won't appeal the fir- like the, the conviction, the acquittal for the first degree. Like, he's, he's still got the max sentence. And then they turned around and still did this appeal, right? And the families were like thrown off. They're like, you just told us that you weren't going to, and then you did. And if you notice, the timeline is like, it's within a month. So December 11th was sentencing. January 7th, they send this appeal in. Okay. This actually was, I mean, the the families were slightly panicked. So this causes that that panic for the victim's families because they're like, all right, what if he goes to retrial and the conviction is overturned? And then that's a mistrial or that's a, that's a something else, right? They're like, what the hell are you guys doing? And the attorney general's office, they would basically state, they're like, this appeal was made as a strategic move in anticipation of an appeal from the defense. So they're like, no, 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 we did this. We had a plan. They had to apologize to the victim's family saying, we're sorry, we didn't tell you about this before. But the appeal is really conditional for them. Okay. Okay. So the rationale is let's say that if Picton appeals and if he gets a new trial, the prosecution would want to move forward with a new trial with the original 26 counts as a whole for first degree murder. Oh. And then they would like, they're just like, yeah, we would be able to present all of this other evidence that we have for 20 other murders. And we would be able to get him there. And then the jury, it would likely be first degree, right? Okay. So that's really like their thought process. Now, the other part is they said it's conditional, right? And they're like, well, if they don't appeal or or like they're denied or whatever, then we'll just, we'll stop our process for the appeal and we'll say, never mind. And the conviction, the second degree murder convictions are upheld. Now, on January 9th, 2008, just two days later, the defense does submit an appeal. They were seeking a new trial on the six counts of murder, and they basically stated that the trial judge made a mistake in his main charge to the jury. So they're kind of saying the same thing as the prosecution, but in, like, their favor, you know? And they weren't looking to get tried for all 26. They were, like, just the six. But the prosecution is like, (laughs) try again. The British Columbia Court of Appeal issues its decision on June 25th, 2009. So over a year later, some parts of the decision were not publicly released and there's, there was still a publication ban in effect at this time. Well, the defense, their appeal was dismissed by a two to one majority. Picton would go on to appeal the Supreme Court of Canada on August 24th, 2009. Now the Crown or the prosecution, their appeal, it was allowed. But they did stay the appeal so that the conviction of second degree murder would not be overturned since the defense's appeal failed. So they're like, no, we're good. We'll upheld the the second degree. Part of this is because he's not going to get more of a sentence. Like he's already at the maximum, even for a first degree murder. He's not going to get more time. Like it's it's not going to change even if it's turned changed into a first degree, right? Even though it it very much is first degree. 
Yeah. Now, just to follow up on the Supreme Court appeal, it was also dismissed and the Supreme Court of Canada would affirm uh, Picton's conviction. Now, the 20 other counts of murder, they do discontinue the trial. According to the prosecution, this was largely due to the fact that, again, even if found guilty, Picton was already serving the maximum punishment for the six he was found guilty of. Give him more. Tack him on. The families of the victims had mixed reactions. Some were upset that they, they wouldn't be or their loved one wouldn't see justice. But others were relieved that it'd be over and they wouldn't have to live through another trial. Like, can you imagine going through those details again? See, I don't know. I can't I can't imagine. So I don't know what I would do in that situation. Me personally, I'm just like, I don't care. Give them give them the respect they deserve. Tack on more years. Take them back to court. I don't get what's he got to do? Nothing. But also you've got to think of it. Uh, it's not gonna change what he's like, his sentence isn't gonna change. He's already got life in prison. Like, yeah, it's not gonna change anything. So on one hand, like I get it, getting justice for the 20 women. I totally get that. But it's not going to change anything. He's already convicted on the six. Do we put more resources into that? More time, resources, money into 20 that we don't know if he'll be convicted of again? And I guess not making them go through that again for the victims' mm-hmm. families. So, okay, I see both sides. I, I see both sides. I, I get it. Yeah. Um, there was an article um, talking about how basically they're the Canadian officials are requesting to destroy the evidence for the remaining 20. Okay, that's, that feels a little that, much. That's like more recent. That's like in the last couple of years. Um, victims' families were not thrilled about it. However, he's in jail and they're not continuing with the charges. It's kind of like, well, I get it. Why keep the evidence? Yeah, I can see that point too. Mm-hmm. Anyways. So in response to like the why it took so long to catch him, Deputy Chief Constable Doug Leppard of the Vancouver Police would issue an apology to the victims' families in August of 2010. And this is what he said, quote, I wish from the bottom of my heart that we could have caught him sooner. I wish that the several agencies involved that we could have done better in so many ways. I wish that all the mistakes that were made we could undo. And I wish that more lives would have been saved. So on my behalf and behalf of the Vancouver Police Department and all the men and women that worked on this investigation, I would say to the families how sorry we all are for your losses and because we did not catch this monster sooner. Feel about I don't know how to feel about that. It, I it's I get it. He's like we fucked up. We're sorry, but also sorry doesn't cut it. Yeah. So this is a lot of women. That- and I know this is a long story. I'm almost through. Picton's sister, Linda, she would actually change her name and leave British Columbia after his arrest. She wanted nothing to do with it. She was like, bye. Fair. She never knew this guy anyways. Yeah. Now, there are more women that Picton is implicated in murdering, but there are no charges that have been brought against him. Those include Cindy Beck, who went missing in er, in 77. Stephanie Lane went missing in 97. Jacqueline Murdoch went missing in 97. Mary Ann Clark, I could not find the year she went missing. Yvonne Marie Bone went missing in 2001. And Teresa Dawn Cray went missing in 2000. And then two other identified women. So I think that's most likely part of the publication ban where either they're Jane Doe's or, or it's part of the publication ban and we just don't have their names. 
The victim's children, they would file a civil lawsuit in May 2013 against the Vancouver PD and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for failing to protect the victims. They did reach a settlement. Each of the victim's children were compensated 50000 Canadian dollars without either agency having to having um, to basically admit any liability. So hit and miss there. We already know in 2011 that inquiry would begin. We talked about it at the very beginning. It did conduct investigations concerning the missing women, and they would ultimately find prejudice against the drug-addicted, poverty-stricken women and sex workers of the area. In 2016, Picton supposedly wrote his own book and smuggled it out of prison. It was called Picton, in his own words. The author of the book was accredited to a Michael Childress. Basically, Picton is able to smuggle this thing out of prison, this manuscript, by uh, like a former cellmate takes it, all the way to California, gives it to this Michael guy. Michael types up the manuscript. He gets it published. His name is on it. What are you doing? You should have burnt that thing to ashes. It used to be for sale on Amazon, but petitions just basically showing like this is going to an incarcerated individual that did these heinous things. Yeah. Um, it's no longer on Amazon. I didn't even look, try to find a copy. I'm not buying a copy. Who wants to read that? I don't care about what he has to say. I, yeah, I could care less. No, it's really not clear when Picton's crimes begin, at least the murderous ones. But it is believed that it probably began in the early 1980s, around when they initially inherited the farm. As of 2015, the property is fenced off and it is under lien by the Crown. All buildings except for one on the property have been demolished. Picton is still in prison to this day. That was the biggest eye roll I've ever seen. I'm sorry. I I wish for better of this case, but I'm glad it's over. I'm glad he's in jail and I'm glad he's never getting out. Why was I so excited for this story again? I don't know, but you were very excited and I've been like, oh, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I think that's why I was excited because I didn't have to do it. Oh, okay. That makes <laughs> sense. Yeah. I should have let you do it. <laughs> and there's a lot. Like, I could have gone into, like, the inquiry, a lot more of the missing women and their story. Like, I really could have, but I decided I didn't want to do a six-part story again. Not this time? Not this time. Maybe when I de- do D.B. Cooper. See, I will sit for three episodes listening to that, okay? <laughs> so I'm perfectly fine with that. Uh, I'm glad that I never have to see this again, because I'm going to see this farm and my nightmares for a little while now. Yes. There are so just for listeners, the pictures will be up on um Instagram, Twitter, the works. And you do just you gotta see it. It's just the most dingiest. Even uh, the pictures of Picton, like he looks dingy. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, he just looks dirty and gross. Like, okay, the picture with his head tilted to the side, not the one where he's looking at the camera. I feel like I can smell him in that picture. Oh yeah, right. And your nose just crinkles up. I removed yeah. one of the pictures because it was duplicate, and I don't think we okay. can post it on anything because it has flesh in the background. Yeah, pig flesh. Yes, it had pig flesh <laughs> in the background. But yeah, he just he. This is definitely a man you smell before you see. Yes, and just like all look at, and it's crazy because normally like you hear about serial killers kind of having a type but when you look at the victims there is i mean yeah he had a type he had the type that was like sex worker 
impoverished area, but yeah. none of these women, like they're all so unique. Yeah. He just, it's, I think he really did just, like he said, he wanted to hit 50 and he took whatever. He took it to heart. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the women, just so everyone knows mm-hmm. on the collage, I did not name um, simply because I couldn't find anything to actually link them. But on the collage, someone else made it. And they, these are just part of the missing women. Okay. I was going to ask that. Yeah. So, but in, it's absolutely insane. I, yeah. Anyways, I'm ready for something less horrifying. Yeah. Oh, get me out of here. Get me out of here. Oh, okay. I know you have a ghost story. Yes. I <laughs> did a haunting because I'm on one, I guess. Okay. I don't know. And thank God too. So I did. The Sweetwater Mansion in Florence, Alabama. I went back to Alabama, but this time we're at the top. I don't know why I did it like that. At the top? Yeah, at the top. At the top, with the flare in the wrist? <laughs> yes, the flick of the wrist. The flick of the wrist at the top. Yes. Uh-huh. So, the Sweetwater Mansion was named for Sweetwater Creek. It flowed nearby. And it's a plantation home that was completed in 1835. So, this is pre-Civil War. This thing's old, y'all. It was designed by John Brand. He was a veteran of the War of 1812. He got all the way up to general under Andrew Jackson. And then after he was appointed, after the war, he was appointed commissioner of public lands. And that's when he designed and started building this house on what was originally 4,000 acres of land. That's a lot. Yeah. That, like... 4,000 acres of land and you're the uh, the land commissioner? That feels a little sketchy to me. But I don't know. Anyway. Brand died on July, July 5th, 1984, before the house was completed. So he left it to his son. And his son was like, I don't want this shit. So he traded it to his brother-in-law. It was first occupied by his son-in-law, Robert Patton, who would later become the governor of Alabama. And it was he lived there with his wife, Brand's daughter, Jane Brand Patton. They had nine kids in this house. That's a lot. It's, I mean, it's a big house. It's a pretty house. Yeah, but still, it's only an eight-bedroom house. And you got nine kids. And one of those rooms is yours. That's not mathing. Children can share rooms, plus how spaced out were they? Were they, like, every year? Or had someone maybe moved out? I couldn't find. Were the there twins that wanted to share a room? I feel like even if I was a twin, that's even more of a reason to not want to share a room. Where you shared a womb. That's my point exactly. <laughs> I've shared enough with you. Listen, you're not a twin. I don't think you understand. Not that I'm a twin. I'm just defending twins around the world. I knew some and I don't know. I feel like they felt the same way. Well, one of them wouldn't care. And the other one was like, no, I would take my own room if I could. So I guess it depends on the person, on the twin. I guess we're arguing for each twin. You argue for one, I argue for the other. They eventually finished the home according to Jane's father's plans, which I like. I appreciate that. During the Civil War, three of their sons left, but only one of their kids or of their sons returned. And the house was also raided by Union soldiers as they marched through to Chattanooga. And they... From what I read, they basically camped by the creek or the river and just kept going back and stealing shit from this house. Multiple times, they raided 
their food. They took stuff from their cellar. The farm in general, any supplies they could find at this house, they, they saddled them up on their horses, and then they took them. And then they took their horses. That's crap. You're taking my shit and my horses? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess at this point, I don't have anything to freaking feed my horses with. They, it seemed like they just, they would restock. Because, I mean, what else are you going to do? And then they would just come back. And on one occasion, they were even said to have assaulted Jane. That's bullshit. The, uh, from what I could find, I think, because I went way too deep into this, but I believe it was William Tecumseh Sherman and his men that raided this house. And from what I saw, that was a brutal, brutal man. So the basement in this house, it served as a hospital in the Civil War. After it was a county jail. And in this basement, they have a secret room, is what they call it. Like a bunker? It's a room in the basement that it doesn't have a door. All it has is a window that you can see into the room. What's the point of the room? Like, if you can't enter the room, what's the point? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. Oh, okay. So April 6th of 1862, William Billy Patton died at the Battle of Shiloh. He was 24 years old and his body was returned to Sweetwater. They had a funeral in the parlor of the house with the casket set up for brew- uh, viewing. I'm sorry. For brewing? Wow. No. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh. I read a different word. Okay, look, let's, let's keep going. Listen, they- you just had to listen to all of that shit on Robert Pickton, so it's fine. I'm still not okay. That's why. Okay. So they set up a casket for viewing. And according to legend, Jane just was completely inconsolable about losing her son. She refused to let the undertakers take him after the funeral. And instead, they had a room built in the basement where she would be able to visit him. There were no documents to prove this. How is she visiting him? He needs to be buried. Through the window. Oh, wait. Yeah. Um, Listen, I know this isn't like, like you said, there's no documents to prove or to validate this. However, ma'am, please listen. Please don't do that. Because let me just tell you that, like, this just feels like you're going to get sick. See, like, that's another thing, though. Like, okay. Number one, this is the 1800s. I I think your house already stinks, right? Like, y'all already stink. This is going to make it so much worse. And well, it's in the I mean, basement in Alabama. Imagine the summers there. Because there was no air conditioning and stuff. How I've did never you been even... to Alabama. I can't oh, imagine that. Don't go. It's not that great. Unless you like <laughs> heat and mosquitoes. I like heat, not mosquitoes. It's both. It's all or one. You can't just okay. have one. Can I just go to the Caribbean instead? Sure. I don't see why okay. not. Okay. Do they have mosquitoes there? <laughs> Probably, but at least it's the Caribbean and my ass can be in sand and happy as can be. I mean, Alabama's got sand, too. Not the good type of sand. No, it never leaves you. Where the hell was I at? I don't know. I started talking shit. Okay, so... Oh, I was saying, like, there were no documents to, uh, to prove that this room was built and that's what it's for. We know it's there because they, uh... The house was closed, but there are a couple videos from where they would let people go and investigate it. And they occasionally have ghost tours. But from what I've heard, that has not been for a long time. So people okay. see the, the the room. It's there. 
I don't really know what kind of documents you would write up for something like that. Like, I don't know if you have to get a notary to approve approve you storing your dead son in a secret room in the basement. So, I don't can't help you there. Sorry, Adam. I, I, I have to ask a notary. But uh, William Patton, he does have a marker in a family plot in Maple Hill Cemetery, and then that's in Huntsville, Alabama. That has his name on it. We believe that at some point in time, he was moved to a cemetery. What's kind of creepy, his brother died three years to the day after William or Billy. It was April 6th, 1865. He died. Robert Patton died in the Battle of Selma. That's insane. He was also returned home. And he has a marker in the family plot at Maple Hill, too. But it's rumored that he was also kept in the basement with his brother. Yeah, but how are they getting in there? The window that it shows is, is pretty big. It's at least... So it's basically a door. Oh, no, it's not that big. It's maybe, I don't know, it looks to be like maybe two feet, two feet tall, two feet wide, maybe three feet wide. Like, it's a substantial window. You could climb in it if you wanted to. I don't know who the hell would want to. Not it. Maisie will, for the sake of research. We'll just throw a ball in there. She's gone. She's not even questioning it. She doesn't even care if there's a ghost in there. She's like, give me, give me ball or give me nothing. (laughs) After the Civil War, Robert Patton, this is the dad, sorry to be clear he did go on to become the government the governor of alabama the government of alabama damn (laughs) he became the whole government sorry he went on to become the governor but he was stripped of his authority due to the reconstruction acts of 1867 but he wasn't done with alabama he contributed to the reconstruction of the university of alabama (laughs) roll tide and he also helped establish the chattanooga railroad He passed away in the home in February of 1885. Jane lived out the rest of her days in the home. She passed away at 88 in her old bedroom on April 15th, 1902. Which I still think is weird because both of or two of her sons died on April 6th and she died on the 15th. It just makes me think of, well, that. Yeah. After their passing, a man named John David Whedon, he just took it. Just took the house, just moved in, which is still just a wild concept to me. He practiced law before enlisting to serve in the war in 1861. He achieved the rank of colonel before the war ended, and he returned to Huntsville and went back to practicing law, and he married Maddie Hayes in 1870. They lived in the house for a while. I couldn't find when it left their possession, but the house sat empty for a long time. Mm-hmm. That's a really pretty picture. It does not reflect the inside. And a lot of that is uh, accredited to a woman named Letty Region. She was the last known occupant, and she was one of the caregivers that lived in the house, the caretaker. There are stories that she was so afraid of the house that she confined herself to just two rooms and even nailed a door shut. But I found... Wait, um, if you're afraid of the house, why would you lock yourself in it? Yeah, I didn't get that either when they said it on TV. I guess because she was a caretaker, but then, like, you can leave. Hey. Yeah. I'd be like, build me a shed out back. I'm not going in that house. Exactly. Not even a shed. I don't want to be on this property. Okay. So I found um, this website called paraatlantis.com. I'm sorry, paraatlas.com. Oh, I was like, we're going to Atlantis today. Wow. Not yet. Maybe one day, though. 
paraatlas.com. They did a really good story about this house. And they said that according to Letty's friends, she was a gun-toting woman that wasn't afraid of anything. They said that this is a lie. Uh, They said that she was not afraid of anything. She lived in these two rooms because they were the only rooms in the whole house that had heat and air. Which, like, I wouldn't go anywhere else in that house either. Air, valid. The heck? And her friends also claim that Letty lived there for over 20 years. So as ramshackle and dilapidated as this house is right now, they claim that Letty is the one who kept it upright. Her friends claim that the city and the family that currently own the home owe Letty a debt of gratitude because who knows what the home would have looked like without her, to which I say, fair. Okay. She lived in that house until she was 74 years old. So I think Letty deserves a little more credit. Yeah, I don't think she was afraid of the house. No, and she wasn't. uh, Another thing I read said that one of the rooms that she stayed in, the reason that she stayed in that one is because it had this big window and she could see all of the property and make sure the trespassers and stuff didn't get in either. So Letty sounded like a wonderful woman. She had her shit together. The house is not open to the public, so y'all just don't go to it. There are occasional ghost tours. Uh, Paranormal teams, I told you, have been allowed to investigate from time to time, from what I found, not in a while. But there are some videos out there, and there's a whole lot of accounts. Uh, So do you want to hear what happens in this house? Well, yeah. This is said to be like one of the most active places. Pretty much everyone who goes there, you're guaranteed to see something. They feel, people feel a heavy feeling, especially on the second floor. They said there's a notable difference whenever you get up to the second floor. It's eerie or unnaturally quiet at night. You hear footsteps, giggles, and laughter. Uh, People hear children giggling a lot or running up and down the halls. Nope. I'm out. Bye. One woman said that she got her hair pulled and it felt like, okay, this is horrible. It felt like a child and she described it as feeling it go up her back and then kind of pull her hair. And I'm like, why, why is it going up your back? Why are you allowing this? Why is that? Why did you consent to that? Yeah, don't. Oh, don't. Don't touch my back. Don't touch my hair. For the love of God, don't touch my shoulders. Vomitous. Just don't touch me. Yeah, just don't touch me at all. People hear whispers, chattering, uh, like chit-chatting. They hear breathing in their ears. People hear their names being called. If you leave something in a room and come back to it, it's gone. People say, like, because they're, they're doing work on the house, if you leave a room, you need to bring whatever tools with you. Because if you leave their hammer there or something and they go off when they come back later, they cannot find it. So you've got thieving ghosts. Oh, yeah. They just allow thieve ghosts. Ghosts. Like, no big deal. It's fine. Just don't leave your shit. A lot of people said that it felt playful there. That doesn't feel playful to me. I don't know how that would be playful, but I guess what do I know? It feels mean. It feels like I'm going to get fired because you took my shit. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. What am I supposed to do without my hammer? I guess you just go steal someone else's and blame it on the ghost. Hell no. Don't touch my shit. I will be calling the authorities. Which authorities? Ghostbusters, police, I don't know. Oh, well, they touch a lot of shit here. They move furniture, and there's actually um, footage of, I say footage, it's 
pictures that are taken and there's like a second or two in between each picture and it shows this chair being moved in front of a man and the pictures you can tell they're taken like super quickly but there's nothing around it supposedly yeah <laughs> it was creepy um rocks are thrown um just come out of nowhere no one knows where they come from but they i believe at least two people i saw claimed to have them thrown at their heads Oh, that's just what I want. People are touched. They're poked. I mentioned the hair pulling. People get sick and nauseous and they just cannot physically be in this house. They hear knocks and bangs. Doors slam. One door in particular to this one room, it locks itself all the time. And they say that you'll be working in there or something and the door will lock. And they just have to leave it and then they come back the next morning and the door's open again absolutely what if i was in that room and they just locked it bryce there's no doorknob on the door there's nothing to lock it it just won't open okay but regardless what if i was in that room and i'm like let me out i'm glad you asked because females often get locked in that room we're not going absolutely not Maisie. did you hear that we are not going People hear a people hear. I'm sorry. People see adult-sized shadow figures. One of them uh, specifically is a gray, misty woman in period clothing, seen walking down the stairs. People get they feel crowded, like there's a lot of people around them, but nobody is with them. They're completely nope. alone. Do not enter my bubble. This is my bubble. This is your bubble. My bubble. Your bubble. Mm-hmm. Our bubbles cannot intersect. Oh, this person said there's there is no bubbles. He said it felt like there was a room full of people and he was no, the only person in it. There are bubbles. Is, and we all need to respect each other's bubbles. Whether you're on this plane or another one, respect Bryce's bubble. This is my bubble. <laughs> the ghost bubble's over there. The ghost bubble is non-existent, <laughs> actually. There is no ghost bubble in this house. In my house, her bubble is over there. In my house, you're not welcome. Take your bubble elsewhere. She's not welcome. I'm just saying she at least <laughs> respects the bubble. People, people often, I'm sorry, I'm still laughing at your bubble. People often find a lot of evidence in pictures that are taking at Sweetwater Mansion. They'll see orbs in pictures, faces, a whole ass Civil War soldier standing on the lawn. It was reenactment day. I See, I, until I read that, I was like, you know, I don't want to go in this house, but I want to go see it. You know, it's pretty. It's old. I like old things. And then I read that and I'm like, can't even walk across the lawn. No. Nope. Uh-uh. No. Nope. I don't even want to drive past it on the interstate. What do you mean you don't want to drive past it? Think about the party it would be. I am not going to any parties, piggy paranormal or the like, <laughs> for as long as I live. Could you just like... No, that's fine. I'm not even going to argue with you. <laughs> I was waiting. I was like, what could you possibly? <sighs> okay. So sometime after Letty departed, uh, trespassers broke in. And there's rumors. I, I could not substantiate this either. But um, people say that they did some kind of ritual. <clears throat> and whether or not that's true. They did allegedly leave behind this 
mannequin head? Nope. With a trowel stuck in it? Nope. No. Uh-huh. And they said that after this happened, um, I think the reason they believed that there was a ritual is because the spirits got worse and they got maybe a little more aggressive, a little more active. And the head is frequently launched across the room. No. And there's security footage of it. I looked and I couldn't find it on Google. I found it uh, on Paranormal State. It's on Discovery Plus. It's only like 22 minute episodes. So you can binge a whole lot of them like I did. Um, It's season six, episode six. You watch this thing. I think it was on the mantle of the fireplace. And it just shoots across the room and you can hear it it's like i don't understand if the ghosts don't like this thing and they why do you keep bringing it back take it exactly take it out of there they don't like it i don't like it i don't like it being in there at all i'm not comfortable at all but that's uh that's what i got on the sweetwater mansion i wanted to end that on the unnecessary mannequin head this story was unnecessary for my um, my nightmares. But, I mean, the house is pretty. I'll give them that much. It is very, very pretty. I'll, I'll concede to that. Oh, and I'm sorry. There is another photo. Um, you can see they claim to have gotten a picture of a woman. It looks to me like maybe a woman with a, like a misty figure with an apron on or something. Definitely a dress. They claim it was a woman. You know what? Let them dress however they want. Man, woman, it doesn't matter. Just because they have a dress. Hot damn. Hey, if you want to wear a dress, that's fine. What color? I don't care. Hot pink. Do it. Wow. Um, That was a lot, and I'm still processing a little bit because it's a lot. Oh, growling. I forgot. Sorry, they hear growling there, too. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. It's better than moaning. Okay, look. I've got to reread my notes. <laughs> it's better than moaning. <sighs> yeah, I'll take that one too. I don't know, honestly. Growling can be just as bad as moaning. Not the type of moaning you were talking about. <laughs> okay. I don't want to hear that either, though. Yeah, if you guys don't get it, go back to the three single ghostly ladies episode, which, by the way, I have no idea what I named it, but. Yeah, sorry. It was a lot. 69? Tell me that was not episode 69. Okay, good. Thank God. That would have been even worse. Because 69, I did paranormal. Because this is 70. Yep. So 68. That's how math works. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's how numbers work. At least that's how our numbers work. We're not just choosing a random episode number. Look, I work at a bank. What do you think? I'm good with numbers? No. (laughs) I'm really not great. I just thought you could at least count to 100. Oh, easy. Yeah. yeah. Especially if it's uh, $100 bills. Cool. I got that. I said two a hundred. Yeah. Especially if it's yeah. $100 bills. Those are easy. easy. I just yeah. grab one. It's the one. 50s that really mess me up. Yeah. How many of these to a hundred? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening to Hell on Hills podcast. To see pictures from this episode, you can follow us on Instagram, Hell on Hills podcast, Twitter, Hell on Hills pod. Or Facebook by searching Hell on Hills Podcast. You can find us on Linktree by typing in Hell on Hills Podcast. If you want to support us, please like, review, rate, share, and subscribe on your preferred listening platforms. 
If you want to take your support one step further so we can create more content for you, you can donate through Patreon, where we are working to release specials for our patrons. If you have your own true crime or paranormal stories, suggestions, or just words of encouragement, please email us at helenhalespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to tell your friends to listen with you as well. Bye!